Welcome to Plodcast Podcast, episode 45. Good to have you with us. Thank you for coming. I want to kick off uh, this episode by talking a little bit about Edenic perfection. What do we mean when we think of the Garden of Eden prior to the fall as being a perfect place? Now, uh, this this is important because it ties in with uh, uh, issues of um, theistic evolution and whatnot da- downstream. We, we won't get to those uh, uh, at least in any de- any detail today. But what I'd like to talk about is what what did a perfect garden look like? Or more to the point, I want to talk about certain things it did not look like. So when let, let's imagine Adam walking in the Garden of Eden prior to any sin. No one has sinned. Is are are there any leaves on the ground? Is there any dirt? Are there any twigs lying about? Right? Or does this perfect garden have to be made out of stainless steel? Does it have to be all, you know, um, or made out of molded plastic where nothing ever deteriorates or rots or falls down? Or uh, Well, we don't have uh, a lot to go on, but we do have some uh, indications. So, for example, prior to the fall, Adam is told that he can eat from any fruit uh, in the garden, with the, the one exception. So he can eat any fruit from any tree. Now, if he eats the fruit from any tree, what's going to happen is he's going to chew that fruit up in his mouth, and he's going to swallow it. And his stomach, his unfallen stomach, is going to have enzymes, and that fruit is going to be broken down. Now, the reason the, what I'm driving at here is what this means is that uh, entropy existed prior to the fall. The fall does not bring entropy into existence. Now, in Romans 8, we're told that the fall brought in bondage to decay. Uh, so I, I, would, um, I would compare entropy to a river, a beautiful river flowing, flowing down through its uh, riverbed, and out-of-control entropy in the sense described in Romans one, Romans eight, uh, post-fall entropy, being a river that's flooded its banks and that is uh, um, very, very destructive. So, entropy out of control, entropy that is causing us to wither up and die, and entropy of a certain sort exists after the fall. But that doesn't mean that before the fall there was absolutely zero entropy. Entropy is basically increased randomization, increased randomization. And the molecules of the fruit that Adam ate and swallowed and were um, put into his stomach, those molecules were increasingly randomized. Uh, They were were broken down. Uh, Illustrated another way, before the fall, if you had handed Adam a deck of cards, would he have been able to shuffle them? When you have a deck of cards, they, they come to you out of the box in a particular order, and you shuffle them in order to increase 
randomization? Or would Adam, because it was an unfallen world, shuffle the shuffle the cards and it comes out a royal flush or comes, you know, four aces or uh, I can't I can't randomize this deck of cards because uh, there's no sin. Well, clearly, the world was a real world with real dirt, real fruit. Mulch was possible. Compost was possible. Uh, and that means that entropy at that point was a servant. Entropy at that point was not destructive. Um, Adam was told, the day you eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, you shall surely die. Now, that kind of death, not, not the death of bacteria or the death of, uh, of an apple or the death of a banana, but the death of the image bearer of God, that was something that was introduced into the world by sin. So when I see the effects of entropy on my body, and I know that my body is um, 20 years closer to the grave than it was 20 years ago, and I know that not just because of the time scale, but I also uh, know that through various aches and pains and things that I can't uh, do as well as I used to be able to do. As I see entropy taking hold of my body, and all of it is an inexorable progress towards the grave, that is a post-lapsarian reality. That's a post-fall reality. But that doesn't mean that everything before the fall was uh, pristine and pure and unchangeable in any sort of fussy sense. Um, and this relates to um, this relates to theistic evolution. I want to argue that prior to the fall, there was no agonistic death, no agonistic death before the fall. It doesn't bother me that bacteria had to perish uh, uh, in order for the uh, the world to function, but there's no agony involved. There's no nature red in tooth and claw. There's no struggle. I don't believe you had any dinosaurs falling into tar pits before the fall. I don't believe that you had any animal, any predator, ripping the throat out of another animal prior to the fall. Uh, God looked down on everything and said, behold, it was good, very good. And that kind of pain and suffering was introduced into the world by our sin. But don't make the mistake of claiming too much for it and saying that, and that meant that uh, uh, whatever Adam and Eve did, it always followed a perfect uh, order or a pattern, like they, their, their life prior to the fall was somehow robotic. So here we are, episode 45 of Plodcast, and thank you for being here with me. Um, the, the book I want to talk about this time is a book that, uh, by a gent named Dolezal, and the book is called All That Is In God. All That Is In God. Um, this book is basically a defense of, it's a very robust defense of, uh, the doctrine of divine simplicity. Uh, the doctrine of divine simplicity. Now, when you're reading your New Testament, uh, you will have certain attributes of God uh, described for you. And when these attributes are described, you want to make sure that you don't um, adopt a false notion of them. You, you don't want to fall into the wrong kind of uh, metaphor. 
The Bible describes God as holy. The Bible describes God as loving. The Bible describes God as just, and so on. Here's the false analogy, the false metaphor. You don't want to take the justice of God and the love of God and the kindness of God and the holiness of God and and the omniscience of God and so forth and stack them up in such a way as when you finally have them all and they're all stacked up like so many building blocks— you have God. God is, uh, put, put another way, God is not a composite being. He is not a composite being that comes into being because you've stacked all these attributes together. God is, as the theologians say, God is a simple being. All right, this is what we mean by, the, by divine simplicity. So, uh, riffing off of the title, All That Is In God, um, there are certain things that that sound odd when you first say them or you when you first hear them, but on reflection, and I think usually a minute or two reflecting on them, you can see how it has to be. What this, what the doctrine of divine simplicity entails, is anything that is in God, is God. Anything that is in God, is God. So take an attribute of God, the love of God. The love of God is God. It's not one one-hundredth of God. It's not one-fiftieth of God. It's not 90% of God. The love of God is God. The justice of God is God. The kindness of God is God. In other words, you can't carve God up. Now, we are finite. And we, we cannot comprehend, uh, we cannot comprehend God immediately or all at once. And this is why God uh, condescends to reveal himself to us piecemeal, not because he is in fact piecemeal, but because we couldn't handle it any other way. But we want to make sure that we don't make a sort of sophomoric mistake when we're, when we're reading about the attributes of God. The, uh, God is not the sum total of his attributes. God is the Holy One, the thrice Holy One. God is the one who is all that he is. And, and lest you think that I'm talking like the philosopher, uh, like a philosopher, that's not really what this is. Uh, this sort of thing is indicated to us in the, in the great name of God when God reveals himself as I am that I am. Tell, tell them I am that I am sent you. God is... Uh, self-existent, God is immutable, and God does not interact with the world as though he were Zeus standing on a balcony looking down on us. And this is, this is the place where it gets difficult. Theologians, um, well, difficult in one sense, I think very simple in another. Theologians describe the difference between God's actions, God's um, uh, I put scare quotes around it, but activity, what, what God does, ad intra, without, that would be anything within God without reference to the created world. And then God's works ad extra, God's works as in the incarnation or the death of Jesus on the cross. So when God takes on human flesh, that w- w- the incarnation is a divine work ad extra. It's a divine work, odd extra, outside the Godhead. 
Um, but there's activity, there's love, for example, within the Godhead. Um, when John tells us God is love, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. And I would, I would say, following Augustine, that when one infinite person loves another infinite person and that love is returned and it's a mutual love, that love itself is a third person. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the love of God and is the love of Christ. Um, God's love for the Son and the Son's love, the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father, and the Spirit as the Spirit of love, all of that is ad intra. That is occurring within the Godhead without reference to the external world. So, this book, All That Is In God, is fighting an accommodation that some theologians in the evangelical Reformed Calvinistic world have been starting to make with regard to whether interaction with the world changes God in any way, changes God in any sense. And Dolezal argues that the simplicity of God and the eternality of God and the immutability of God require us to say no. Um, we speak of God anthropomorphically when we talk about him hearing our prayer, uh, but we're not, we don't believe that God is Zeus standing on a balcony, scratching his head, wondering what am I, what am I going to do? He's not changeable that way. He is not a, he's not a creature that he should repent. Anyway, this, it's a very good book. It's, um, it's dense material, but it's not that long, and it's a good read. I would, I would recommend uh, pastors particularly uh, to get it. So we're in episode uh, 45 of the podcast, and we're continuing our discussion of the, word, uh, the words hamartano and hamartia. The word hamartano is found in two sections of Luke and used twice in each place. The first is where it is rendered as sin. Uh, that's in Luke 15, uh, verse 18, and Luke 15, verse 21. And in the second place as trespass. Okay? The first place is where the prodigal son confesses to his father that he has sinned. In the second passage, Jesus says that if our brother trespasses against us, we should forgive him upon repentance. And if he does the same thing seven times in one day, our response should remain constant. So the first place is in Luke 15. The second place is in Luke 17. Um, the prodigal son confesses that he has sinned. And in Luke 17, if your brother trespasses against you seven times, each time you should forgive him. And he, and he confesses it each time you should forgive him. Hamartia is found 11 times in the Gospel of Luke. It was prophesied over John the Baptist as an infant that he would give knowledge of salvation to the people by means of remission of sins. That's in 177. And then, later, when John first started preaching, that is exactly what he did. That's in Luke 3.3. 3. A few chapters later, as with Matthew and Mark, the word is used when Jesus forgave the sins of the paralyzed man who was brought to him, and the word is also used in the disputing afterwards. That's in 520, 521, 523, and 524. And when the sinful woman washed the Lord's feet with her tears, the Lord forgave her sins. That's 747, 748, 749. And this is the word that Jesus taught us to use in the Lord's Prayer when we ask for forgiveness. 
That's in Luke 11:4. And then last, the Lord commissioned the church to preach the gospel, preaching repentance and remission of sins in his name. That's in Luke 24:47. God in the time of the sickness. God in the dark. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.